Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know, there's there's some thinking that you experience the most traumatic death like you like any time that there's another death you you have you re-experience the the first and most important death in your life and I remember thinking you know Meg has died she's not here is this all I'm going to do with my life like am I going to be as much as it was fine being a lawyer was fine but it it didn't always make my heart race with excitement and it was safe and I thought I have a life I don't have to be safe why am I being safe you know so I said to myself, the next really big opportunity I get, I'm going to do it, which was kind of counter to my, you know, I think another thing of having a parent who dies early is it can make you conservative because you feel like there is danger in the world and you try and you think you can control your world and you can't. That was Don Porter. I'm Sam Fragoso and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Everyone's origin story is a little bit different, but I imagine uh, there aren't many filmmakers who were first lawyers. That's the case for Don Porter, who started as an attorney before she turned into a documentarian. Right from the get-go, Don brought her courtroom knowledge into cinema. Her first film, Gideon's Army, released in 2013, followed the life of three young, committed public defenders who do all they can for the people they represent. From there, she went on to make a film called Spies of Mississippi, then another one in 2016 called Trapped, which investigated anti-abortion laws across America. If you haven't seen that film, it's now available to stream on Netflix and is completely worth your time. Her latest project, which was released a couple weeks ago, is called Bobby Kennedy for President. It's a four-part documentary series about the life and times of the late Robert F. Kennedy. Like most Netflix original documentary series, it is uh, entirely addictive and bingeable and uh, worth your time. Even if it is four hours and five minutes, it is broken up into four pretty tight and concise, interesting episodes, which is what we try to do on this week's episode of the show. Um, You'll notice that the runtime is a little bit shorter than usual. I think we end this one at about 40 minutes. Sometimes you do these episodes and you end up at someone's house and you talk for three hours. Sometimes you have to go to Netflix facilities and sit in a conference room and uh, have to go after 45 minutes. Regardless, I think Don and I covered so much ground here. Um, The cultural 
and legal impact of the Me Too movement, her late father's habit of handing her cameras starting at the age of three um, to Kennedy himself and uh, why she found him to be such a riveting, fascinating uh, subject. Also, before we get into this, I would um, be remiss if I didn't uh, give my thoughts and love to uh, Kate Spade's family and uh, Anthony Bourdain's family and and really anyone who is um, suffering with depression. I, uh, you know, if you've listened to the show, uh, it's probably obvious that I too have uh, battled with some of this. It's not an unfamiliar feeling to me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And uh, I don't know if it gets easier. I'd like to believe it does. But I do know that uh, in in my time of trying to, to grapple with my own depression, that uh, seeking out help, whether that's um, a therapist or, or someone in the medical field or, or just a family member or a friend where you can feel vulnerable and not entirely judged, it never hurts. It never hurts. The hardest part of doing that is uh, the reaching out. <laughs> it's everything leading up to it. But I think once you've uh, reached out, it, it only is going to get better from there. At least that's the case uh, for me. And um, we've received emails and I've received texts and, and messages in the past and, and even recently about um, this show helping folks uh, with depression and helping folks feel less alone. And, um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't, I can't, uh, can't really articulate how much uh, that means to me and, and, and how much uh, that moves me. Uh, that this thing does that for anyone. Uh, you know, I'm glad. I'm just glad. I'm just glad that something productive is coming from these uh, rambling, uh, vulnerable attempted uh attempts at sincerity that's what these conversations are they are attempts at sincerity in a time where i don't think people give too much of a shit about that so anyway i've kind of lost my voice as you can hear but um it's been a hard week and uh, it's gonna get harder probably before it gets better so Boy, that wasn't optimistic. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, um, should you need uh, to reach out to someone, you know, you can always send me an email um, if, if, if you really don't have someone to talk to. Um, I'm essentially a stranger to most people listening. And, uh, you know, I have time to respond to an email every now and then. I don't know if I'm really the person you want helping you. But I'm here to help if I can. So, yeah. Boy, now let's listen to a podcast. Um, <laughs> Dawn Porter was really wonderful. She is so, so smart and um, really tapped into the cultural conversation here. And I tried my best to keep up. I hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, have a good week, everyone. Here, finally is Don Porter. Let's start with something very simple that you said. You said, um, topics choose a filmmaker, not usually the other way around. How did uh, Bobby Kennedy choose you? Um, oh, I love that question. I love that I said that. <laughs> Great. There's a lot of love all the way around here. Um, you know, uh, there's a there's a lot that goes into choosing your projects. And one thing, particularly for documentary folks, is we live with our subjects for years. So 
whatever you choose to occupy that amount of time in your life has to be something that you're, you know, is, is big and you're, you get a little obsessed with. And for Bobby Kennedy, for me, he was somebody that I knew like as a famous person, it was like a postage stamp, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of, uh, fame for me because I, I wasn't, you know, a grown up during the time that he was, uh, was working and living, but I always knew he was really fascinating to black people and he was really, really important to African-Americans and then he kept coming up in um, random interviews. So, like, I interviewed Eric Holder, the former attorney general, mm-hmm. in the Department of Justice, which was very exciting for a lawyer geek person like me. Um, and Eric Holder talked about being inspired by the Kennedy brothers. He talked about being a 12-year-old in Queens and seeing them and thinking, you know, maybe I could do something in politics. And then, you know, fast forward and Eric Holder is sitting at Bobby Kennedy's desk mm-hmm. and has a, a portrait of Bobby Kennedy over his, his you know, uh, in his office. And he just kept coming up. And I was really interested to explore how somebody who started as counsel to the McCarthy, you know, committee ends up as this real ally and champion for civil rights. Mm. And so that was part of the, the the way that I feel like the story, you know, just chose me. As a kid, you remember people around you talking about Bobby Kennedy? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, in my grandmother's house, there was a picture of the Kennedy brothers. And um, what would people say about him? You know, um, I think to my grandmother a lot. And um, this is not about Bobby Kennedy. It's about Jackie Kennedy. But but my grandmother worked for the Presbyterian Church. She was a secretary for the Presbyterian Church. And Jackie Kennedy would walk her children to school every day herself. And my grandmother was like, she is a good mother. Those Kennedys are good people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was this this sense that, you know, for blacks, for, you know, Mexican-Americans, for Latinos, that the Kennedys were listening to marginalized people, to people who didn't have a big voice. And, and that was really important. Um, you know, today, I think, despite the fact that there are so many uh, civil rights violations happening, we do have a lot more political power, you know. Um, but then, you know, those voices were not, uh, that was certainly not the popular thing to do, is to say there are poor people, there are people who can't vote, there are people who are not having the same opportunities. And and so for Kennedy to take that message and amplify it and repeat it, particularly into white spaces, mm-hmm. was very, very significant. What do you think it was about him that allowed him to even arrive at that conclusion? You know, I think, and this is this is one of the things that was really exciting to explore in this series, is, is the Kennedys were not, civil rights was not the focus of their attention for a long time. In fact, it was inconvenient. You know, the Southern governors, the Southern politicians were saying, if you support, if you say anything positive about King or Castro, we will defect. We will support the Republicans. And this is the Southern Democrats. Um, so for for the Kennedys to ultimately, you know, do things like call and get Martin Luther King out of a prison um, where he he probably would have been killed, um, you know, to do things like that took a lot of political bravery. But they had to be pushed. And, you know, what I explore in the series is it is not an accident that Bobby Kennedy became the civil rights leader he did. He was pushed. He was he was you know confronted by uh, Harry Belafonte, by John Lewis, by Dolores Huerta and uh, Cesar Chavez, and having those interactions, I think, was you know a huge um, you know push for him with his interactions with James Baldwin. But to his credit, he was willing to engage mm-hmm. and to be pushed. Right. You know, and that I think is is a big lesson for all of us is if you surround yourself with an echo chamber, you don't invite voices um, that may push you towards the place that you should be. I mean, it's a great thing we've learned that lesson, I think, especially with the, um, the Trump cabinet. It feels like they have a lot of diverse voices in there and they seem to be 
really listening to everyone and, and really welcoming. It's so you know, welcome. I, 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 and growing. I, I watch them and I thank God. What telling a, the truth. What a warm group. They That's have right. There. That's right. I watch them and think how much confidence I have mm-hmm. in our you know, government. By the way, the, no one uh, listening will know this, but for the first 12 seconds of my sentence, you're like, what is he talking about? <laughs> is he being serious? I was like, Whoa. he is a white person. Maybe he's really <laughs> dumb. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was only six seconds. Oh, great. <laughs> My calculation was a little exaggerated. Was, yeah, it was only Although I, I will say that um, in the aftermath of Trump being elected, you said I have never been so disappointed in my country. Yeah. I tend to be an optimistic person. I believe in the goodness of people. I've seen so much of it. Something broke in me this election. Yeah. What broke in you? Uh you know, I was filming for a short about voting rights, the election day, um, 2016. And I was with um, this remarkable woman um, from the Advancement Project, um, African-American voting rights expert. And she had just won a big victory in North Carolina um, that really restored voting rights for um, for people in North Carolina. And I followed her around that whole day. And watching her just kind of like hand-to-hand combat, making sure people could vote. And it was exhilarating. And she was addressing volunteers. Um, You know, there was this really, um, there was a group of volunteers. And they were, you know, older um, people, some young people, but older people. But people like who were like janitors and bus drivers and they were they were coming to volunteer to make sure the polls were fair Mm. and she was training them and then we watched them do their thing and it was just like such a great feeling like you felt like you were literally watching democracy work and that and I kept thinking like how far we've come from when people you know were so intimidated and disenfranchised and that night um to see those election returns I there's this this dark feeling of gloom just kind of overtook me. And I really felt for the first time angry. Um, I felt disenfranchised. I felt like nothing matters. Um, And I, I, you know, but what I also felt was like, do I belong here? Is this my country too? Mm. And, um, and then I felt angry about feeling that I'm like, you know, what the, like, uh, why do I get to like... You can curse on the show. Me? What the fuck? Like, like I am... am and of course it is my country. Of course it is my country. But why do I now feel like a stranger here? Mm. And... Um, you had previously not felt like that. No, I felt like, you know, there... Uh, you know, certainly we have differences, but I really felt like um, I have had so many opportunities and, you know, have traveled the country and met so many people that I admire and we might have had political differences but I I, you know there were differences there should be differences Mm. right but this felt really dark and it's it's been hard to come back from I mean you you know you sometimes I'm a person who loves the news and I love like reading the paper and I'm like he's taken the news from me like it's too much you know it's overwhelming you feel um helpless and I thought well if I feel helpless, how do people who don't make media for a living, how do they feel? Right. So, um, you know, that was another way that the, the Kennedy film really did speak to me, which is um, if we think, you know, Vernon Jordan, um, I, I've been doing a, a bio of Vernon Jordan for the last several months. And one of the things that he says over and over is we have been here before and we will survive this. You know, so that's kind of what the Kennedy Project allowed me to do mm. is to is to examine and see a time that was just as chaotic and frightening for the people who were living through those times and to see um, how we came through that. You know, the movie works um, especially well. It's four parts. I watched three of them last night. I have to watch the last one today. And... Um, not only is that movie good, but what you're describing is almost bigger than movies, though. Yeah. You're describing a personal, emotional part of you that felt um, broken and, and, and maybe not fixable. And I, and I guess I wanted to know, have you repaired some of that, some of that joy, 
some of that spirit. You know, um, and this is 100% truth. Um, working on that, this project really did help that. Because, you know, if you watch hundreds of hours of a person just vigorously asserting the need to be just and fair, um, it's hard not to be influenced by that. And, you know, and then seeing, um, I think what it is, is when you get to be my age and, you know, you feel like you have a certain amount to contribute, I felt like, do I have the energy to keep going? And what has done more than anything to invigorate that energy is watching this next generation of activists. They are not disillusioned. They are mad. And um, they, you know, the Parkland kids, the Black Lives Matter leaders, you know, people who are pushing for for um, trans rights, you know, all of these movements coming together, they don't think they can fail. And that's the energy that we need, you mm. know. You know, also, though, speaking with people like Dolores Huerta, um, and she said during one of our interviews, she said, you know, Cesar Chavez said to her, the only time you fail is if you don't, you know, keep going. And and uh, if Dolores Huerta <laughs> could work for years and years and years with, you know, the odds, seemingly insurmountable odds, then I think we certainly in our little bubbles can keep going. I think that's true. Although I want to say something specific to you that some folks may not know um, is that you started as a lawyer, turned to a filmmaker, but backtracking even further... Your father was a photographer in the 70s in New York. He died at the age of 12. And I have to imagine, this is just my theorizing after knowing you for 13 minutes. <laughs> um, although we had met once before, but this feels like 15. another time. Thanks. That that has contributed to your perseverance in some way. Um, you know, it's an interesting thought. I mean, you know, and maybe subconsciously this is something that I was attracted to as well is, you know, my father died when he was 37 and I was 11. I felt very acutely the pain of the Kennedy kids and that sense of what if, um, that sense of longing for a person that was larger than life for me. And I also felt like I understand the impulse to carry on, you know, to say, you didn't get to live your life, but um, it was not in vain. Mm. And, um, you know, so I think that, that that there's there's some truth to that. Do you remember that day? That my father died? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, um, he was at a, a, across the country. And um, so it was also kind of like, I want to say magical realism, but it, that sounds positive and this is not positive. Um, so... <laughs> You know, my mother had to tell us um, that there was, you know, this terrible event and it just felt, it just felt impossible. It felt like, like overnight your, my whole world changed, you know, mm. and, um, you know, my father was a very creative, he was the, the kind of artistic, had this, you know, we used to make Super 8 films when I was little. Um, that's what we did for fun. <laughs> we would go out and find good light. My mother was always like. We're always chasing the light in this car. Um, and my father was very, um, he was one of those people that people were attracted to. People liked being around him. Um, and he had this studio like on the far east side in New York City. It was one of the old carriage houses. Um, so it had this like cobblestone floor and really tall, um, you know, tall ceilings and amazing light. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time there as a little kid. So like the smell of like, you know, pictures being developed is kind of like seared into my brain. Mm. Um, and, you know, but for, and, and I, this is something I share in common with Rory Kennedy, you know, um, who is a person I've gotten to know a little bit and I have a lot of respect for her. But one of the things, you know, I, I when I started this, I said to her, I'm doing this, this project and, and. She said, well, are you asking something? And I was like, I'm not asking. I just feel like I would want to know, you know, like we know each other socially and, if I, you know, I would want to know. And so she's been really um, great. But, you know, one of the things she said is I can't watch. It's just too, it's too much. And I completely understand that. And it's hard to 
explain to people. Um, but um, what's hard to explain? It, it's hard to explain. I think you know if you've lost a parent as public as the Kennedys are. I think people don't often enough realize the exquisite pain of that loss mm. and how um, how much is asked of them. You know, people felt Bobby Kennedy's death so acutely that they wanted it to live on in his children, and it's a lot of pressure for them. And, you know, I respect that they've each taken their own path. But really, you know, today's the anniversary of the Ambassador Hotel, and so... You know, part of the anniversary of the end of his campaign, but also his his um, his death, and you know they are commemorating that and sharing that with the world. Um, something that you know I, I think is very generous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to kind of put aside their own personal feelings um, in some ways and be their repository for everyone else's needs. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, that's a long answer. It was a good answer, though. (laughs) I have something very specific to ask, which is, um, do you have a distinct memory or moment with your father? Because he clearly had an effect on you and Mm -hmm. he inspired you to become the filmmaker that you eventually became. Do you have a moment where he said something to you that has stuck with you or that you think about, I don't know, once a month? Yeah. Um, It's not something that he said. Um it's kind of how he was. Um, you know, my father was not a person who was critical. He was a person who you could tell quickly if he was disappointed by kind of a, almost kind of a look. Um, and we never wanted to get that look. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I also, you know, I remember the way he was with models, um, with clients and how, you know, kind of an atmosphere or a tone that he would set. And um, I do do that, you know, now, like when I set up interviews, really making sure that the person that you're speaking to feels like you have their full attention and that you are appreciative of what they are giving to you, you know. And I, I do think that that I remember the the tone my father would set. Um, I don't know. He just had this way of making people feel welcomed, and and they left happier than they came. Mm. <laughs> and I don't I don't really know how he did that. Yeah. But um, I I felt like I always felt like that was kind of a gift. You I, know. I've tried to do some of that on this show. <laughs> it does. It helps. You know. Like if you feel like it's sincere. You mm. know. Um, I think also my parents were, you know, to a much lower scale but they were very we had the house that was open that was you know the kids wanted to come over and play games and our house was messy and you know and that was great for kids it wasn't a precious house um and you know understanding that it's important to create an environment where you you can be creative and not feel like you're worried about your clothes or something (laughs) um that was kind of a that was kind of a lesson for me what I think is quite clear is there are divisions and violence and a disenchantment with our society. We can start to work together. We are a great country and a compassionate country. I kept saying to myself, what is happening in America? Robert Kennedy's self-confidence came from his family. Methyl emerged a moral center. Unlike most guys with his power, he was a great father. I think makes it uh, worthwhile is you make the right kind of an effort. You can have an effect on their lives. The Kennedys were in the middle of a transitional moment for America. He had learned you didn't do things that you weren't going to win. But the new politics said you do the cause, whether you win or not. I've looked at... um... Your background, and there's not that much out there that I can find, actually. <laughs> um, I'm pretty good at research. Stinks. <laughs> really hard. Um, but you went to school at Swarthmore mm-hmm. and then law school at Georgetown. Uh-huh. Then you go to a firm for five years. Yep. And before 
doing that, it seems like you're pretty much destined to be a lawyer for the rest <laughs> of your life. Where did that left turn come from? Well, before the left turn, did you enjoy being a lawyer? I did. I did. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, kind of in relation to your earlier questions, I almost like my father was a photographer and I became a lawyer. You know, it was like, okay, this part is done now. Like we had that, I had that moment. And um, I remember picking up a camera when I was 16, I got my first camera and um, if it just like, it was like a part of my body. <laughs> like it just was always with me. And it was like, I just loved this camera, but it, it took those like years in between the time of my father's death and being like 16 years old to like even pick up a camera. Like I just like physically, even being that young, you know, I had held cameras like since I was three and right. like he was always putting a camera in my hand. So after that it was, there was this, this little bit of opening, but I still couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't like Commit to see it. a life in the arts. Like yeah. It was just, it was too close. It was, it was too much. So I kind of like went the total other way. Right. But um, also the other way in terms of the mindset, which you were describing your father as someone who's not uh, terribly critical. Right. <laughs> to be lawyers about the exact opposite. It, it's true. It's true. I, sh- I should I should pay you the 200 bucks an hour for therapy. <laughs> Happily. Happily. To be um, fair, my mom is also a lawyer. <laughs> um, but, you know, being a lawyer was really appealing to me. Um, there's something quite beautiful and elegant when you create, you know, it, well, I was a litigator and when you can take something complicated and make it comprehensible and persuasive, there's something really elegant in that. And, you know, being at Swarthmore, all we did is write, 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 write. And so it was probably the time in my life when I was the best writer that, you know, I'll ever be. Mm. Um, but I saw kind of like that magic of, of, you know, kind of when you get just the right turn of phrase and, and like there's a pacing even in your writing. And so being a lawyer really appealed to me um, and I enjoyed it, you know, and I was at this, um, a firm that was kind of leaned uh, to the more conservative, kind of center conservative. And I found the best mentor I could ever find who was like an older white Republican guy, moderate Republican, but Republican nonetheless. Um, and you know, I I had so much respect for him as a person, really ethical person who treated me with such like rigor and like demanded, you know, um, and, and I just I learned so much. And I also learned, you know, I learned so much that I used then later in documentary. Um, you know, what you do as a young associate is when you take depositions and things, you listen to people, you listen to people's stories and you you know, have questions that evoke more from them. So if you take a bunch of depositions, you learn how to do a good interview, you know, and you you also get a sense of of people and what um, what it takes to do a good interview, you know, and then writing. Um, but, all, you know, the other thing, is his name was Lee Ellis. He's just recently passed away. But Lee, he always used to see, say, read the local rules, you know, for the courthouse, read the local rules for the judge. And when I was making Gideon's Army, Lee Ellis's voice like kind of popped in my head. He's like, read the local rules. Cause people were like, can you film in court? And I was like, I don't know, read the local rules. So I kept going and it was like, this court says it's up to the judge. All right. So the judge said, the judge said maybe, but then he had a memo like, like four layers deep. There was a memo from one particular judge that laid out the process. If you wanted to record in his courtroom. Mm. So Lealis, I filed a motion. <laughs> and then two weeks later, I get a call saying the judge will hear your motion. You know, I think I don't know if anybody had ever requested like to put a camera in his courtroom before. So I flew down there and I brought a camera man with me just in case. And he had a hearing on the record and I argued the motion and he allowed a camera. And, and you know, it started out with um, me, a camera and a side and a sound person. And he allowed us to be like in a three by three area. And after three years, we had a, we had a microphone on his desk and we had four cameras in that courtroom, you know, and that really um, made a lot of the scenes in, in my first film. And um, I think that there's a combination of, um, you know, what I learned from Lee Ellis is like details matter, like keep asking, ask the question, first of all, don't assume, you know, mm-hmm. anything. But then, you know, from I think from my parents, but also from Lee, 
is be respectful. You know, um, we listened to this judge's rules and did not try and sneak anything or anything like that. And that trust became mutual. Right. And that, um, you know, that kind of created that film. So You asked yourself earlier, um, where did that left turn come <laughs> from in regards yeah. to changing from lawyer to filmmaker? Although hearing it out, how you just laid it out, um, it doesn't sound that bizarre that you shifted. And yeah. that, of course, your first film was in the legal realm. Right. And, and you know, a number of things that I'm interested in um, are kind of explaining the legal world to civilians. <laughs> right. You know, and kind of trying to, to, to expose that. I mean, there's another piece of it, which is, so clearly my time at my law firm was really you know, transformational for me. But um, I had a really close friend, my best friend, and she died of ovarian cancer and she's 37 years old. And um, I just had this moment. Um, you know, there's there's some thinking that you experience the most traumatic death. Like you, like any time that there's another death, you, you have, you re-experience the, the first and most important death in your life. And I remember thinking, um, you know, Meg has died. She's not here is this all I'm going to do with my life? Like, am I going to be as much as it was fine? Being a lawyer was fine, but it, it didn't always make my heart race with excitement and it was safe. And I thought I have a life. I don't have to be safe. Why am I being safe? You know? So I said to myself, the next really big opportunity I get, I'm going to do it, which was kind of counter to my you know, I think another thing of having a parent who dies early is it can make you conservative because you feel like there is danger in the world and you try and you think you can control your world and you can't. Mm. Um, that time is precious. That's right. So, you know, the next opportunity that came was to move to New York and to work for ABC. And, you know, I was like, I said, yes, I'm going to go do something out of my comfort zone. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a big move for me, <laughs> but that you know eventually led me to where I am now. Mm. So it was a great move, but I, I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> I mean, have you found that a lot of your adulthood is combating the conservatism? Of, of, Not anymore. <laughs> I think um, you know when certainly when I was you know if you're in Washington D.C. and I lived on Capitol Hill and I was like a political junkie. And a lawyer, you know, with like suits, yeah. um, you know, so you can, can kind of like see where this is going. It's some sort of miracle that you didn't go crazy. <laughs> you know, there was, you, you were like really invested in local politics and um, community events. Um, but we also like, you know, I remember this, we at our law firm, there was another guy who was a filmmaker and the um, partners asked us, the associates, they didn't ask us, we volunteered, we made a film. <laughs> About being associates at this law firm. Oh, my God. Yeah, and there was one memorable scene where we were, like, trying to sneak out um, from, like, working late. But, you know, there's, there's like, signs all along the way that was, like, what you really want to do is make movies. Can we see that yeah. film online? You cannot. <laughs> <laughs> you may not see that film. That one's buried. Yes, but it went over really big. It played really oh, well. Oh, it played well? <laughs> you should have submitted it to Sundance. <laughs> So, um, yeah. You know, something that uh, is interesting is that even though you have moved away from law and order, and <laughs> whatever that means, it's still very much ingrained in not only your films, oh, they're often the subject of your films, but uh, even in your answers, you, you have a very, there's a very diplomatic, concise way in which you answer questions where you have... It's, even if, if it's a longer answer, it's fairly eloquent and it has like three points <laughs> and you've got it down. Yeah. So I have um, a question that's like a very big one and I hope maybe you can answer it. Um, as both a, a former lawyer and a woman in the film industry, there's been so many pieces that have come out uh, in regards to the Me Too movement mm -hmm. and, and folks coming forth. And I've just been wondering very practically... I've also asked my mother this. Mm -hmm. um, what is the legal recourse mm -hmm. for some of these women coming mm -hmm. forward? Can we hope to see any amount of, of change in, in this? Can, can we see laws passed? Can we see yeah. 
someone going to jail. I mean, just yeah. anything. You know, um, I mean, one of the frustrations, I think one of the difficulties um, is that it, these cases have to be case specific. You know, it depends on the facts. It depends on the state, you know, a, a number of them. If they're not governed by federal law, and there's a lot of qualifications for whether or not you're in the federal law or the state law system. But I think what we're seeing may be even more important than individual um, legal victories, which can take a long time. And I think that there's a an awareness that this is so pervasive. And I think, you know, the scope of this just kind of smacks you in the face. And you're thinking how, you know, first of all, I think you respect the people who have pushed through those experiences, but also just the awareness, you know, um, that, that this is something that people have had to carry with them and, and, you know, figure out how to handle along with just all the other things that come with being a young person working. Um, I think that that's really valuable. Um, and, I, you know, I do think I've heard some, not all, but some men, you know, say, well, we, we can't even tease people anymore. We can't even, you know, and like, like maybe it's not teasing, you know, to me, like, mm. you know, Maybe that's not so fun. <laughs> I do wonder what teasing they're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, you know, the other thing is like, maybe you should go ask yourself that and not like, you know, ask me for permission for you to harass me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think that the awareness is huge, 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 huge. But I also think that the message to girls, which, you know, previously was, this is something to work around. I think that we're saying that that's bullshit. Like you don't work around that. You stop that. The other thing that's happening is more women in senior positions are, you know, so I have been on a set where someone was harassed and, you know, thankfully it was me in charge and she told me and, you know, we dealt with it right away. It was not like, oh, can you just, you know, continue filming? Like, mm -mm, that wasn't the case. You know, I was an employment lawyer also at ABC. You know, I fired people um, who did that. So I have like a really strong belief that that part of having people who are aware of these situations um, be at the head of a project is incredibly important. And I, I that's it's not just having women in charge. It's having people who are aware and who are not going to take, you know, that kind of behavior Mm. lightly. So you see the change more socially and culturally than in the court of I do. And, you know, the other thing is we can't, um, I do not see this Congress, you know, we can't even ratify the ERA. I mean, (laughs) you know, so I don't, and I certainly don't see this Congress that is the rolling back civil rights protections, you know, faster than we can even read them. Um, I don't see any advances coming that way. We have, you know, some courts, but then, you know, we have, uh, th- this is why voting matters. You know, some judges are elected, um, some judges are appointed. So, you know, if you think about who's appointing the judges, it's important to get the right person mm. in power. I mean, you worked at ABC and you've been on sets and you made movies. Did any of this surprise you? No. <laughs> I mean, that's sad, right? But no, no, not... Um, sad, but not surprising. Sad, but not surprising. Um, and I think it's important to responsibly take this moment and use it to make things better. Um, and not to make it just a fad, you know, but to make kind of a real and sustained change. Because if if we overreact um, and are unfair to people who are accused, I'm also acutely sensitive to the idea that people who are accused have rights. Um, and mm. if we are unfair to people, that will do no um, benefit to people who are, are real victims. Have you felt that people who are accused have had rights? Um. I'm concerned about the, you know, kind of devastation to everyone's career. I do believe in second chances. I do believe that um, some people can be educated, and I don't like the kind of gang mentality, rush to judgment. Um, At the same time, it is important to not have um, people who feel untouchable. 
So I'm I'm kind of more of a measured response kind of person. Um, What's that? You know, I <laughs> no, think that I'm that's, joking. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know what it is. That I'm, is, I'm, I, well, I think it's a fair <laughs> question. You know, like uh, um, if someone's accused, um, you know, I think like George Takai, like that's a great example. You know, someone who accused him of, of you know, sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out the person's story wasn't really that credible, uh-huh. but the damage was done, you know? Um, and so I think we have to be um, really aware of the power of the accusation. What I'm afraid of is that I couldn't say what you just said without getting um, a lot of shit. I'll get a lot of shit for it and I don't care. <laughs> you, you will not get as much yeah. shit. Yeah. Because I, you're a woman and because yeah. you're a person of color, yeah. you will get less shit. Yeah. That, Which I'm not saying is unfair. It's kind of unfair though um, because I think, you know, and that's, that's I think like we have to learn from the past. You know, we can't just wildly swing from extreme to extreme. That is not helpful. And as a person as a woman and as a person of color, like I don't want, you know, people making exceptions for me. I want things to be fair, you know? Um, and I, I want things to be fair for everybody. Mm. Um, but there's, you have to take responsibility for your, um, you know, if you're, if you're a white male person who's feeling kind of persecuted these days. I'm not saying this, this is you, but I have, I've definitely not me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I want to get that out there. Don't feel persecuted. It's more, you don't seem like you feel persecuted. Yeah, no, I'm fine. Um, But I've seen some people and, you know, they're kind of just stunned. Um, and you know, I find a lot of those people to be babies. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, um, kind of welcome, (laughs) you know, like, like this is kind of what we deal with all the time. So, um, you know, I think that um, we have a real opportunity here to do some good. So my last question, because we have to go and you have things to do before you go on people your vacation. See. Oh, my God. <laughs> so many people to see. Um, <laughs> what do you want, um, not only for your career moving forward, mm-hmm. but um, for you... As a person in the world, we talked earlier about um, a part of you that felt broken in the aftermath mm-hmm. of Trump. So what does the next few years look like for you? Um, you know, I really want to keep growing um, as, as a filmmaker. Um, I like making work. I really like the process of uh, creating and collaborating. And, you know, one of the things that attracted me to Kennedy is it wasn't an obvious project for me. And, you know, I, I think filmmakers tend to get kind of boxed into, you know, oh, she does this or she does that. And I wanted to shake that up um, and, you know, kind of push myself. So um, I'm kind of interested in that spirit of Meg, my friend who died, like channeling that energy and doing something that's not obvious and not expected. Um, I'm also interested, um, you know, I have a, a getting a certain amount of um, publicity, you know, helping amplify the voices of other people have been where I've been, you know, in terms of just starting their careers, second career for me. So I'm really interested in doing something that's like unexpected and that continues to challenge me. I don't want to do anything safe. Do you think your father, David and Meg would be proud of you today? I think they're, you know, um, I do. I think that they're, you know, <laughs> probably laughing um, together and thinking, you know, we knew she had it in her. <laughs> um, yes, yes, I do. I do. Tom Porter, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for a great interview. Anytime.
Special thanks this week to Emily Spiegel, Kim Parker, and the good people at Netflix for hosting us. Speaking of, Don's latest film, Bobby Kennedy for President, is now available to be streamed on Netflix. To learn more about Don, be sure to visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. As always, this podcast is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited time 11 month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash CV for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.